And my church in Durham, we have a train that comes by about every Sunday at this time, so I appreciate the motorcycle going forth. Um, I have to pause in paragraph three of my sermon for the train to go by. It is a great pleasure to be here from North Carolina with you today. Um, this is such a beautiful space, windows, the stations, all of you. I'm glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Um, though I'm glad to be worshiping with you this morning, I'm going to risk violating foundational etiquette. Some people's mothers told them not to talk about religion and politics in public. I grew up in a family where we talked about politics all the time, and my mother told us not to talk about religion or smell in public. <laughs> Talking about smell, she said, was fundamentally déclassé and might make people think about feet. So I'm an Episcopal priest and I teach at a divinity school and so I've generally found it difficult to avoid talking about religion in public but I usually manage the other half of my mother's dictum. And then you get to the middle of the Gospel of John and it becomes difficult to avoid the topic of olfaction. So this morning's sermon is about smell and actually in its way it is also about feet. Apologies to my mother, who is probably rolling over in her urn right about now. <laughs> the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Our gospel reading is drawn from a section of John that is deeply obsessed with smell. What's happened in the chapter before today's story is that Lazarus, one of Jesus' best friends, has died and Jesus pays a graveside visit and orders the stone that has been laid in front of the cave where Lazarus is buried to be rolled away. But Lord, says Lazarus' sister Martha, he's been in there for four days and there's a bad odor or as the King James more piquantly puts it, he stinketh, says Martha. <laughs> but Jesus orders the stone to be removed, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And now, a few verses later in today's reading, Lazarus is throwing a dinner party. A dinner party that becomes a sensory extravaganza. Martha is there, she is as usual, preparing the dinner, serving the dinner. She's been in the kitchen all day cooking an elaborate lentil stew and pierogies and a three-layer chocolate cake. And as usual, her sister Mary is nowhere to be found when Martha is doing all this. And then here comes Mary. She comes bearing a pound of perfume. And her hair is down and tangled, and she bathes Jesus with the perfume. She saturates him, and the whole house is filled with the fragrance. The perfume Mary used was nard, which smells kind of like Old Spice. It has a wooded smell, like a forest, like moss. And nard has not just a particular aroma, it has also been thought both then and now that nard has particular healing properties. 
And in particular, both then and now, people have thought that NARD promotes uterine health. So this seems a little odd, perhaps. <laughs> Why didn't Mary perfume Jesus with the scent of lemons, a scent that is thought to produce feelings of peacefulness? Or with sandalwood, which is said to cure both dry skin and irritability? <laughs> Why scent Jesus with a fragrance known to ensure a healthy uterus? It's a little odd. Or maybe it's a hint. This perfuming, Jesus tells us in the text, is a preparation for his death. And the death that Jesus will meet soon after this dinner, the death that we will mark in less than two weeks, is a particular kind of death. It is a death that brings about new life. So maybe Mary is making Jesus not only perfumed, but reproductively healthy so that he can birth new life for us on the cross. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. It's not typical for scripture to speak so extravagantly about smell. Why does the Gospel of John want us to know about the scent of Lazarus's house? the scent of Mary's hands and hair, the now woodsy scent of Jesus' body, the smell of moss. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed how smelling something can trigger a memory? Like you walk out of your house on the first day of fall and you smell that sort of fall smell in the air and suddenly you're taken back to childhood jumping on piles of dry leaves or you smell pencil shavings and suddenly you're sitting in your desk in Mrs. Miller's fifth grade classroom. Neuroscientists have found that because of the physical proximity of our olfactory nerve, to our amygdala and our hippocampus, which largely control mood and memory, because the olfactory nerve is so close to our mood and memory processors, smell can trigger emotions and memory more powerfully and more quickly than hearing or sight or touch. Of course, hearing an old song can also summon a memory, but smell does that more powerfully. One of the particular emotional responses that smell can produce is something psychologists call olfactory comfort. This is the term psychologists give to the ways that scent can help calm people when they are agitated, and particularly how scent can help calm people who are distressed by the absence of someone they love. Olfactory comfort. That's why if your beloved is away on a trip, you might sleep in her shirt or his shirt. It's why a mother leaving the house and leaving her newborn with a babysitter might wrap the newborn in a shawl or a blouse that the mother has been wearing. The infant inhales the mother's scent and is calmed in the mother's absence. Mary is not just preparing Jesus for his death. She is also preparing herself for his death. 
She's preparing herself for his absence and her grief. So now whenever she smells nard, whenever Lazarus or Martha smell nard, the scent will trigger a memory of Jesus. Nard will be marked with his memory and perhaps the scent will soothe her. Years after his death, when his friends smell nard, the scent will, in a way, bring Jesus close. So Mary is not just preparing Jesus for his death, she's also preparing herself. This morning's passage from the Gospel of John is one of the last discussions of smell in the Bible, but it's not the absolute last discussion of smell in the Bible. A few books later, in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul will write something that is very familiar to us Episcopalians, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself an offering and a sacrifice, etc. It's a familiar verse because it's what your priest often quotes halfway through the Sunday service as we pivot to the Lord's table. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, etc. It's from Ephesians 5. But for reasons I have been totally unable to discover, Episcopal priests never quote the whole verse. The whole verse actually says, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Or as another translation has it, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God into an aroma of a sweet smell. Priests never quote the whole thing. It's possible that my mother got to them. <laughs> but what was the sweet smell? Probably Paul, writing to the Ephesians, means it metaphorically. He means to connect the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to all the Old Testament sacrifices of incense, which Exodus and Leviticus are endlessly telling us were acceptable to God because they smelled so lovely. But I would like to read Paul a little less metaphorically. I want to say it was the nard. The sweet-smelling savor was that pound of nard in which Mary had just bathed Jesus. We know on the cross that Jesus felt alone. We know he had been abandoned by some of his dearest friends, and we know that on the cross he cried out in dereliction, sensing that he had been abandoned even by God the Father. Maybe on the cross, the aroma of nard called to mind Mary and Lazarus. Maybe the aroma soothed him and made him feel less alone. And then there is one more use of smell, even later in the Bible. This is in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, where the writer says that the prayers of the saints are golden bowls full of incense. It's an arresting image. When you pray, your prayers are incense, and your body 
the vessel of the prayer is a golden bowl. Some years ago, my friend Robert died. About 14 months after his death, Robert's widow, Maisie, asked me to keep her company while she sorted through some of his belongings. She was giving some of his clothes to their nephews and some to Goodwill, but she was keeping the button-down Oxford shirts that Robert had worn every day to his law office. Maisie now wore them herself to sleep in or to run errands, and she swore that 14 months after Robert died, she could still smell him in those shirts. Smell is haunted by absence. The baby longing for his mother, the widow pining for her mate. Smell keeps us close to one another in absence. Maybe my friend Maisie is a picture of God. Maybe we should picture God as a widow. God's beloved spouse, which is us, the church, has turned away from God, and God mourns. The funeral happens on a Tuesday. There are casseroles and sympathetic notes. God receives a few visits and phone calls from angels, perhaps, although some angels stay away because they don't want to impose. And then a few weeks pass, and the angels forget and go back to their seraphic business of singing hymns and mending robes, and God is left alone with God's grief. And God puts on the gown that God's beloved has always worn, and God's grief is eased a bit by the smell. I think that is what our periodic absence feels like to God. Those hours or days or sometimes years when we are far off and ignore God, when we remain at a distance, our absence is not philosophical or abstract for God. It is real and present. And then we come together on Sunday to pray or by ourselves, tonight or tomorrow or the day after that, we return to God in prayer, and our prayers are like incense. They smell like moss or like the floor of a forest. God is grieved by our being far off, but our prayers soothe him. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. <laughs>